Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here today. And today we'll be talking about some proposed changes at the FCC that's actually going to radically rewrite how community media and technology is funded in, in the United States. And it's, it's one of these things. It's very technocratic. It's buried inside a rulemaking. As FCC rulemaking often is, especially these days. And, and this one is even more so, right? Yeah. It, it, it's even more difficult to understand than what we're typically used to seeing with, with radio or television. And it has to do with cable companies and public access television and 5G, uh, the next generation of wireless data. And but, policy that was set forth in 1984 yes, to fund indeed. these stations. Uh, and, and really changes the relationship of cable companies and internet service providers and wireless providers, changes their relationship with municipalities and communities where yeah. these companies use the public right of way, right? Use public lands to distribute these uh, these different services and have, you know, for the right to do so, been asked to contribute back to communities and the FCC, this current FCC is on the cusp of changing all of that. And what's at stake is the funding model that, you know, has existed now for for a generation for these stations to um, public access TV in particular, public access television, educational and government television. Uh, The way that they get their money is uh, has been complicated, but it's 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 a it's a way that the cities in which they operate have been have been able to force the companies that run the cable channels to pay rent to the cities. And then that's where the money comes from for all these very unique stations in the media landscape. And that's being threatened uh, currently. And the threat is so complicated that I, th- I feel we've already uh, failed to really do it justice. But I think that's part of this struggle right now that's going on uh, for these stations. It's just even uh, messaging around it is uh, – as complicated as complicated gets. Yeah. So we turn to an expert, Sabrina Roach, who is a friend of the show and is currently a board member for the Alliance for Community Media Foundation, which is very concerned with the issues facing community media and public education and governmental channels. So we're here with Sabrina Roach. You're a board member of for the Alliance for Community Media Foundation. Alliance for Community Media uh, represents and helps to organize public access, educational, and government TV channels. We often just call it public access TV, many of us who are not in the industry, all around the United States. There's, uh, a, there's an acronym. It's PEG. PEG. They're called, they're, they're so called we're PEG, call channels, them PEG on, channels by the from insiders. Here on out. Uh, and, of course, you're a friend of the show. We're so glad to have you back here on Radio Survivor. I am delighted to be back on Radio Survivor. Now, I wish we were here to talk about <laughs> <laughs> wonderful things wish. happening for PEG channels. Mm. But unfortunately, we're talking about the beginning of an erosion that is happening at the Federal Communications Commission. Once again, we're talking about the FCC. Because just recently here on July 11th, uh, the FCC put forward what is known as an NPRM, but we'll just call it a proposal, in which they want to begin changing the way in which cable companies like Comcast are able to compute the value of all sorts of things that they do 
for communities, right? And if I understand correctly, Sabrina, when, when a cable company comes into a community, they negotiate with the municipality for the right to string up these wires and to lay, fa- lay fiber yeah. into and the ground. You just said that in the present tense, but we're talking about th- when they did in the late 70s but, and but early But they're still 80s. doing it, yeah. right? It's still getting put out there. All sorts of this infrastructure does continue to get built out. And much of it's along what we call the public right-of-way, right? It's along city streets. It's on public lands. And in exchange for being able to do this, to use the public land, to use the public right-of-way, uh, they negotiate contracts called franchises. And part of that is cable companies pay fees. To the cities. To cities or counties, other you know, whatever municipality is, uh, is charged with negotiating this contract wherever you live. Um, and part of that, in many communities, they also negotiate for these channels, peg channels, right, which includes public access television, people probably familiar with, but also those channels where you might see a community bulletin board, um, your local uh, city council. Maybe maybe yeah. airing its uh, meetings on television on school cable TV. School board meetings. School board meetings. You might see even uh, sometimes high schools or, or even yeah. elementary schools have channels, and this is all negotiated for in exchange for cable companies to use the right of way to provide public uh, to provide uh, cable television service. I have that right. Is that about correct? Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> it's something that governments have extracted from from business for community benefit. Well, and not even extracted. It's it's an exchange, right? I would say it's an exchange. I think this is this is an issue where <laughs> is these it, are is willingly. This given? is rent. I, well, yeah. I think you know. I I would be pretty concerned if I uh, had someone living in a house that I purchased and uh, they were doing that for free without my consent. Um, yeah. So I, I think companies, especially, they have the means. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. They should be paying rent and, for and using tr- taxpayer. Yeah, items. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and the FCC is is the uh, federal government uh, bureau which is in charge of the of these things, which has set these rules that have existed for decades now. Mm-hmm. And it's the 1984 uh, Cable Act. The 1984 yes. Cable Act. There we are, and they want to change it. Yes, regrettably, they want to slash at it. To slash at it. To slash away at. Uh, the monies which come into municipalities. And and they're doing it right in, in kind of a what seems to me to be what I understand to be a little bit of a sneaky way what's happening. Um, you know, rather than sort of saying, okay, uh, you cable company, you just don't have to pay these fees anymore. Or uh, you comp- the municipality, you don't have the right to negotiate for these fees. They're coming at it kind of in, in a different way. Yes, they are... Um, introducing this concept of uh, uh, letting the cable companies characterize certain things that they do as in-kind benefits that they give uh, and that they could assign cash value to those items and then Mm -hmm. subtract that cash from uh, that 5% of, of gross revenue that they pay in rent to to a city for using the public right-of-way. So if I'm a cable company, yes. um, perhaps the municipality has negotiated for there to be uh, free or low-cost cable 
in our municipal buildings. In part, maybe because we want to watch those very same okay. <laughs> uh, those very same meetings of our of school boards and uh, city council that we're airing out. Right. Uh, maybe that's something we've negotiated for. Is that the kind of thing that now the cable company can turn around and say, no, in fact, that has market value, and that you're going to start paying for it? That is actually one of the the uh, items in this draft order. Um, so that is on the table. And so, it's one of the more clear ones. In fact, <laughs> I, I have to say, I appreciate it. Well, there's so these are arcane <laughs> contracts, right? You know, there's so many different items, and and so you have to, you know, often municipalities have to have specialists, <laughs> you know, who can work through these these very little items, and and there's often you know, uh, you know, boards sometimes that are appointed or elected, depending on the community you're, you're, you you live in, who, who work on these franchises. Right. Uh, I, once, I once actually tried to get appointed to one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> back to in, a cable commission? To do a cable commission back in uh, Champaign County, Illinois. By that the way, would have been beautiful community I was, service. I was not appointed. <laughs> the mayor <laughs> did not like me. But, but putting aside whether or not wow. mayors like me. The um, political, the political uh, the wins. The political machinations yeah, of Urbana, Illinois. Career in the, in the I've been in, your, in that city hall actually it's quite comfortable yeah yeah you could have had meetings there i could have had meetings there where <laughs> where in fact the chamber is also a public access tv station so um but that, that's a digression uh from the fact that you know what, what would happen then if if let's say cable company get the fcc passes this order and says a cable company can take sort of these services that have normally just been contractual really in, you know, and yeah. calls them in kind, and right. says now that they can come forward and say, "Well, that that the cable service into City Hall, into all the into firehouses, um, et cetera, across the city is worth I don't know half million dollars, mm-hmm. or a million dollars, or right. a million dollars, right? And it, right? What kind of what kind of what kind of bind is the city in, um, or the municipality? Well, I I, I certainly can't attribute. Um, I certainly can't attribute uh, motive or, or no. not just motive, but you know, I, I can't say what they're doing, but what I think they might do mm-hmm. is that um, this current list, um, it doesn't have the big item that we expected it to have on it, which would be the value of the channel itself, which would um, differ depending on uh, media market, but could completely wipe out the the channels in in those in those cities and when you're saying channels you're referring to the the peg channels the public access education government channels um so so these are somewhat smaller items um that are still arbitrary and don't have a clear uh mutually agreed upon value um and those can add up and they might diminish public access Right. By like thirty percent or so something. So the guess like that. is that a city but, is gonna be put in a bind, right? But right. What I think could happen here and will would probably happen would be that August first happens and then they discuss this this big ticket item, this channel issue, mm-hmm. and then they pass that and then the cable camp companies can um slam that forward. So and make a city make a decision between a million dollars out of their general fund mm-hmm. or a million dollars that um, formerly paid for public access education and government TV. So the concern here is, if I understand correctly, is that this is the fir- this is a first step to begin placing a, a definitive remunerative market value to things that previously 
uh, did not have market value, that were just contractually obligated in which a city could negotiate for as part of leasing the right of way to a cable company. This is a fundamental um, changing of the rules. Yeah. It's a fundamental refocusing of, of how things have been done. And the idea, it sounds like to me, is it's sort of uh, what we're doing is we're actually reducing the value of that right of way. Right? It's we're, we're saying to a municipality that right of way, which um, up to now has had this value because it's actual land value where you know fiber can be laid or cables can be strung, um, that that value isn't worth as much as it used to be. So now instead of uh, that being the justification for cable companies providing both this franchise fee th- and a service, well, no. It- Maybe it isn't worth so much anymore. It's an interesting concept because um, if we um, allow these companies to not pay anything for it or to um, pay a lot less for it, then um, oh, I don't know who who else would be paying for access access to that. I mean, future companies, future that that deploy future technologies. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that will definitely impact the 5g small cell um compensation for our utility poles and our our public rights of way well so let's let's kind of lay this out because i think it's important to understand this step why so what's yeah. gonna what is likely to happen in august 1st which is the fcc's uh public meeting uh for the month where they're going to take up this order uh to change this kind of funding model right, mm-hmm. um, right. there's a high likelihood that the current fcc will probably pass it Right, because it is a Republican-led FCC. This is a Republican-led initiative. It's three. It's their rule. Three Republicans to two Democrats, and we'll probably see a three-to-two kind of vote. If I'm just going to go out and be a betting, <laughs> that's man. like the best scenario. Yeah, right. We can hope for. Yes, uh, which still means it passes. Yeah. The effects it'll have immediately on on sort of public access television, government channels, uh, vague. Right, it could have an effect. Varied, in, I would say. Varied, yeah. It could. It, it'll, it'll there will vary. be an erosion. Yeah, it will not devastate them unless we are in Washington or Oregon. Why in Washington or and Oregon? A few other states that have um, the framework that's slightly different. Okay, so the is that and that's because of why do they have different framework? Is it because of state rules, or is it sort of just the nature of how things proceeded in those states? Do you know? I've been trying to track this down because I am a Washington State resident, and this matters to me. And we live in Oregon here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, to, to my understanding, there's uh, something about uh, cities and towns in our states being able to um, do something with an ISP fee. I think it's related to the Comcast versus um, uh, city of, um, oh my gosh. You said Eugene? Eugene. Eugene. Okay. <laughs> It's one of my favorite cases. How could I forget? Um, the Brand X, which I didn't know anything about. That's something that's different. That's different actually. Okay, geez right, Louise. Right. Um, uh, but, but without going too deeply into it, um, the city of Eugene uh, was able to uh, win a case where uh, Comcast needed to compensate the city of Eugene for its... Um, it's it's for fiber lines or internet related services right, in, their public, yeah. Yeah. in the public right of way digging ditches yeah normally yeah, at this point normally uh, cables uh, companies pay a franchise fee to provide cable television they do not pay this fee 
in most places for internet. Is, do I understand that correctly? Right, which I think uh, is fundamentally illogical. Right. Personally. But but it's but especially since our decision, major like, right. our major uh, internet providers are also cable companies, as it turns out, and using essentially the same infrastructure. And to my understanding, the rationale for our current situation with net neutrality also is traced back to the Brand X decision uh, with with here in Portland, Portland versus huh. AT and T. Yeah. So yeah. what we're so in, you know August one we have sort of vague we have the threats that are not quite so well known but mm-hmm. it's sort of a first salvo right it's a first salvo right uh, in terms of establishing this this precedent that uh, services provided by a cable company to a municipality might be considered to have a fair market value that they can be compensated for now either through reduction of their franchise fees or cash payments and so the concern then I guess for a public access channel is step number two is that, well, that channel, that, that space on our, on, on the dial, um, has value here. And if we were to provide it to, uh, you know, this other network, we would be charging them 500,000, a million dollars, $2 million a year. That's its fair market value as we've assessed in the city of Seattle or in the, the city of San Francisco. But now we, you know, we want you, either uh, the municipality who operates it or perhaps even a nonprofit who operates it, to reimburse us as value. Is that the concern that's on the table right now? That's a concern. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't know when this could happen, but the sense is that now that the FCC has chosen to act on this proposal, because the proposal has been out in some form for nine months, a year, something like this? Since uh, early October, maybe yeah, October 3rd so, or 4th. October of 2018, and we're now here in July of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, then, you know, it's taken this long, but now they're chosen act. We worry that August 1 a meeting that's coming up is now signals maybe an acceleration of taking these things. And, and for people who are not familiar with how the FCC works, often these things are taken piecemeal. It's kind of it's not it's not like uh, legislation in Congress where people tend to omnibus bills and, and put them through. The right. FCC tends to take up hmm. pieces, and and it's almost like we talked last week about some changes that the FCC chose is choosing to make to to help along LPFM a little bit, little tiny changes. Again, they'll do this again, and they'll do this again. It wasn't some huge, big, low-power FM uh, uh, thing. Rather, we made some changes to to help you know low-power FM stations in little tiny ways. This is part of sort of a similar sort of thing. Changes bit by bit to the to the regime in which uh, really runs the way that uh, that cable television is regulated in this country. And do you think the piecemealing is is a strategy? Well, wasn't it John Oliver who said that like the most brilliant way to sneak through something nefarious is to give it a horribly long name and have it be really complex? Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that the best way to get something done to bury it like that? Possibly. So yeah. So yeah. The <laughs> so what we think is happening is that there's this incredibly complex mechanism that would allow cable companies to uh, to pay less money. To the cities that then fund these stations, they want to pay less rent, and then they want more cash. And it's entirely possible that yeah. um, there's 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 a there's a threat that uh, we just don't know the exact size of the threat, 
to these stations continuing to be well, able we to... We don't know the timing of the threat. Yeah, to, to be able... We don't know the timing. We don't know the size. It's a lot... It's a very vague threat. Um, but it's a very real threat to the to the funding for these stations, for their continued existence, or at least the um, in, in the shape and form that they're currently working in, the amount of jobs that they currently are able to staff in the buildings around the country. Uh, and, and, and also would, the, would I mean, the public information. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's not insubstantial to be able to see the city council meeting right. from your own home because you may not have the opportunity and ability to travel well, we should, or to attend a city council We should talk about that. Meeting. We should talk about the value of these stations because sometimes the – And sort of the civic value, right? Yeah. Not, not well, the cash value. Well, yes, exactly. And uh, I would say that the um, – that there's a prevailing notion that they're silly, mm-hmm. right? It's, there's the Wayne's World point of view. That the that mostly what goes on is um, an adorable waste of time on these stations. I think I think it's difficult to understand from the from someone that's not you know intimately involved in their in in the in the programming and in watching it all the time. I certainly can't watch our local station all the time. Why why do these stations matter? What what good are they these days, especially in the age of uh, you know YouTube or my Facebook streaming? capabilities like why why do we have these public access stations in 2020 growing up uh my mom did not believe in having cable uh she did not want us watching mtv clearly (laughs) that was that was something that was very important to her that we didn't get that i was raised on pbs okay so um i really didn't know about public access television Mm -hmm. Until um, I I was in my mid-20s and working at an NPR station. And on, you know, that's when I first heard it existed. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I didn't really get to know it until I was on the board of Reclaim the Media, which uh, was a media reform, media justice organizing um, project in Seattle um, in the early 2000s, like or through the you know, like a decade there. Um, and it was um, other organizers who told me, um, and I was working at a community radio station mm-hmm. at the time, and um, folks folks told me, like, no, you have to pay attention to this because it's... Uh, uh, it's 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 foundational like it's it's a whole layer of access to tools and training and a place to make media that um that that we need to support yeah um around that time i also learned more about government television seattle channel and that's a place that that wins multiple enemies a year um it's it's uh, technically excellent it's always very um uh it's always it's just really always on point in seattle really very important for our civic conversations and um i first learned about it though i guess at kow at this npr station where when i was working in the newsroom we would take um cuts from council meetings right and um wrap them with copy and get them on the air. Um, and so one, I think so it would one, have been quite expensive for yeah. that NPR station to have a reporter at city hall all the time. So that was like a really basic service that was um, provided to, to local newsrooms. Um, but as I got to know more about public access specifically, mm-hmm. like the silly question, like the ridiculousness question, um, I, uh, 
that was a hard one for me. Honestly, I mean, I feel it, mm-hmm. it. Sometimes I feel like I'm outing myself as a person who has not always felt comfortable with public access. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way it was done in Seattle, I wasn't always comfortable. Um, I, I feel that, you know, colleagues have caught me up on like the legacy of free speech and public access television. Yeah, and I. I, I value free speech. I feel like it would be a horrible thing to say I don't value free speech. I personally might value community service more. Like if I was going to make random decisions yeah. about budgets. Well, I, I want to <laughs> focus on one of the things you brought up because mm-hmm. it. I think the contrast, you know, I have some experience now in, in my current life as a media maker. Now I, I've been working at a, a peg station here in Portland and contrasting that with my previous life as a, uh, a volunteer and paid worker at the one of a kind public radio station in the Bay area, a uh, community radio station, like our, our, at KPFA, the radio station, uh, every few months we had to go on the air and, uh, beg the listeners to keep the station funded and there were some very significant funding changes over the course of my eight years there just because of how much the individual listeners were able to or willing to give at any given three-month interval. And that changed the ability of the radio station to send reporters out into the field for stories. That changed the ability of the radio station to produce original programming or to do other uh, – to make radio. And – um to think of the fact that there was another way, there's always been another way that these other stations, um, you know, here here in Portland, Oregon, my experience with Open Signal, the Portland Community Media Channel, the Peg Station, is that they have a lot of a really great stuff, and they also have a really uh, dedicated staff that does a lot of uh, really interesting work, especially with covering uh, or providing coverage of the city meetings, and to to think that there was always another model to fund community media in this country is just, we didn't have it. We don't have that for radio, but we do have it for, for these cable channels. And it's this one, it's just well, one little example of what's possible. Well, I think it's time for us to rethink all of this. Like we need to rethink this ecosystem. Um, if we, I mean, we're seeing with this order, um, an erosion mm-hmm. of, uh, money that we get from paying rent for these companies get yeah. from paying rent rent, rent to right? municipalities yeah right and so um that can lead to this slippery slope and already has led to you know the the ideological framework where the 5g infrastructure build out does not include a public interest component and in fact costs us two billion dollars and, and, and already and, and so when, when you say this so, yeah. so we got to, to help walk people through this 5g the next generation of wireless data services right faster videos on our phones supposedly amongst many things um will require you know people are accustomed to seeing cell towers on top of buildings or Sometimes. Put up. you have to you have to actually know what you're yeah. looking for but, but you see these these antennas right? I think they're there i don't know if everyone has seen well them. Yeah. yeah okay they're there yeah People see that, right? And almost all these cell towers are on private property at this point in time. The property which 
if you are AT&T or you yeah, are T-Mobile, they, they pay rent to you are paying rent to somebody owners. who owns who owns that. Yeah. My understanding is with 5G now, it's a different sort of antenna that will provide this. The kind of thing that you might put on a utility pole. Utility poles, by and large, do not sit on private property. They sit on public lands. They sit on what we call the public right-of-way, the same basic swath of real estate, which also the cable companies use to provide uh, cable service, right? And so what it sounds to me is that we see this creeping privatization, right? right? Well, we should talk about uh, San Jose. So the city of San Jose in California was able to use uh, the rules that we've been talking about today, right? If I Because everything's so complicated. I need to triple check. The, the rules that we've been talking about that are that are under proposal to be changed, the city of San Jose was able to use those rules to uh, to get the 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 ISP provider, the, which is usually sometimes it's the same company, sometimes it's Comcast again. Uh, whichever corporation in San Jose was providing this new five G service, by the way, San Jose uh, adjacent to Silicon Valley, very much part of the the heart of where this technology is coming from these days, uh, they were able to get rent from the companies and then take that money and invest it in community programs to provide internet to working class people. Do I understand this? And that, in essence, yeah. And so that was a yeah. really interesting use of, of uh, well, this very profitable <laughs> business to take, to take a part a portion of it and mm-hmm. give it back to, to people in, who in didn't exchange, have yeah. In exchange for the real estate upon which it sits. Right. Are they able to still do that? In San Jose, or was that part of this whole struggle? Um, basically, San Jose got decent, uh, respectable terms yeah. uh, per pole attachment um, from, I believe it was Verizon. Uh-huh. Um, Again, and you taught and- us it's the size of a mini fridge, roughly, this the, the box that goes up on, you know, one every block, I if I... If I understand it. And it actually gets even more obnoxious. Like um, the way things are written right now, to my understanding, uh, these companies could actually build a cabinet around a utility pole and um, they wouldn't have to mitigate for safety or um, how it looked. Okay. Uh, They could really just. I could hear it. I'm very sensitive. Do what they wanted. (laughs) Um, But. you know, the cell phone towers are somewhat inobtrusive now. You know, there's some... And on private land. And on private land, right? Yeah, sometimes they're, they're, right. Not, they're not on your street corner. And they're what's even more obnoxious the top of buildings, is yeah. that for 5G to work, it's like every 300 to 500 feet. So, ima- like, take some time tomorrow and look at a streetscape and imagine what it would look like to have cabinets around your utility poles or to have, like, dorm fridges on top of all these utility poles in one of your historic, beautiful neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. It, cities should be compensated for that. If that's going to happen, we should be able to, to, to mitigate the safety impacts and what it looks like. And we should be well compensated for that. Mm-hmm. And if we were going with what the historic um, precedent is, we should, cities should be able to have that money to to fund the information and culture sharing needs of of their residents. That's the voice of Sabrina Roach speaking with us just a few days ago on Radio Survivor about a threat that is currently uh, being being proposed at the FCC to the way that public access and educational and government stations peg channels uh, get their funding. 
here in the United States. My name is Eric Klein. With me is Paul Riswindel, and you're listening to Radio Survivor. And this is not something, I mean, it just doesn't drop out of the sky. But the way the FCC works is that you can get inklings that something is going to happen, but it's a little while before uh, the cards are laid on the table and we're into the situation in which a proposal is about to be voted on. And we, in fact, we talked to Sabrina Roach and Martin Jones, uh, another uh, expert on public access uh, television, back in episode 166, because they could see these horsemen on the horizon galloping towards us. Martin Jones was, at the time that we spoke on Radio Survivor, Martin Jones was the CEO. CEO of Metro East Community Media in Gresham, Oregon. Gresham is a is a small city on the adjacent to Portland, Oregon. And one thing we want to tell you about is we're getting ready to make a zine here at Radio Survivor. We're we're, we're contributing articles to be printed and hand assembled, hand laid out uh, for people who love Radio Survivor. If you'd like to learn more about how to get one of these zines. We encourage you to go to radiosurvivor.com slash zine, and you'll learn more about how we're moving forward to try and document the vital history of low-power FM and indie media, the first great social media, really, before Twitter, before YouTube. It was a movement to allow average people, citizens, world-round to record, upload, and share audio, video, uh, and text and picture stories from uh, breaking news events on the streets. It's something that we're we're preparing to do this fall. You can learn more about that at radiosurvivor.com. Yeah. If I might just for a minute speak again about how the connection between indie media, this movement in the 90s, the late 90s, and the low-power FM where this flowering of new community radio stations that are that are smaller than the traditional size of community radio stations and fitting into all these new communities. In case you haven't heard us talk about Low Power FM on Radio Survivor before, it's an incredibly exciting new source of so many stations all around the country. And this opportunity for these stations to come onto the air didn't just happen because of technology becoming available, didn't just happen because people wanted it all of a sudden. It happened because of a long-term campaign from the same sorts of people that were involved in the 90s indie media movement. Uh, They made it possible, and that's the story that we hope to tell. So to learn more, go to radiosurvivor.com. And uh, you can you can find out more. Of course, we'd always love to hear what you think about anything we talk about on the show. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Let's go back now to our interview with Sabrina Roach on this current situation with the FCC proposal that will impact the funding for public access television stations around the country. This seems like it's all of a piece that previously is pretty established law and policy that a public right of way could be used for private purposes in exchange for rent. And right. that cable television is private purposes because cable television is not free. Yeah. No. no, In any city or town, you do not get cable television for free. You, as a customer, pay for it. You pay rents to the cable company for it, um, okay. which, which is in part why this exchange value is there. And that's, that's sort of been a long time a very long time standing principle. And so what I, I hear happening is an erosion of this principle, this idea that uh, that public 
resources that are put to use for private purposes no longer necessarily uh, owe back any kind of compensation to the public. Right. And there's also the the concept of um, preemption of local authority. Right. At, at the level of, of the FCC being able trying to or trying to establish that preemption. And so that's not constitutional. And the lawyers will argue this. Mm-hmm. But we will have a moment where our federal entity will make a determination. So this is a fight. Yeah, it's a fight. It's a fight. And so we do have organizations uh, like the Alliance for Community Media um, and others who are, who are waging this fight both with talking, trying to convince the FCC to do things, and then I guess preparing also uh, for eventualities of having to take it elsewhere. Uh, you know, where does Congress sit in all of this? Uh, so basically, um, we have a petition, can give the link to you, um, and that can ping your members of Congress. And uh, let's see, about 15 senators have written letters of support, uh, maybe 25 House representatives. This is all part of the congressional record now. Uh, these letters were submitted, submitted during a Commerce Committee meeting. Um, our allies uh, with Free Press uh, talked about the dynamic and um, work work has moved forward with this. But and it is to move forward a bill. No, this okay. is simply for them to try and talk to the FCC. Okay, so so initially the Commerce Committee oversees the Federal Communications Commission, uh, and 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 you know is responsible for motivating any sort of uh, legislation that might that might have bearing over the FCC, and so also as a result has some influence. My understanding is that at a certain point, um, Congress could defund. Uh, legis- could have a piece of legislation defunding um, the the functions at the FCC that would carry this out. Right. And there, through that mechanism, um, you could s- somehow delay this. That right. doesn't seem like the uh, the best way to run a bureaucracy. Well, but but <laughs> you know, essentially, at this moment, it sounds like the the you effort have, is to you have the power to do it. We're just not going to pay for it. Is the is the effort to to alert to alert Congress essentially to, to right. get to get your local Congress per people to understand what's at stake here? I mean, there's there's a, a thing here about um, the visibility of public access education, government TV. Um, there's there's been uh, there's been quite the evolution of PEG um, over the last few years where they are. These these stations are spending more time on community impact, yeah. and they're facing outward more and more. I I've seen some really neat things in my community that they've definitely you know invested in, uh, like innovative ways to do community media and to fund it and to um to tell new stories to have new people and, and tell yeah. voices new from across the spectrum. Yeah. I think this is important to note. You know, it it it, it is not. What's very unique about public access television in particular is that by law, they're not able to discriminate right. on on the views and 
and the and, and what is actually portrayed. They may shunt things that are adult to the evening away from children, but they cannot discriminate, which is which is part of that, I think, that free speech argument that you mm-hmm. referenced earlier, Sabrina. Um, because it allowed people to to speak about right. issues that were not that you could not speak about on pretty, yeah, this, on, on nearly any other media. But this is like what Matthew brought up just a couple of weeks ago: is that it's not necessarily a, a denying one kind of speech and uh, in favor of another. It's that you um, help encourage the one that you want to see in the world. So in this case. You know, I know that um, in, at Open Signal they have a program that where they're funding black filmmakers to tell black stories in Portland. Right. Oregon. So the, you, so you can certainly provide resources. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. To and, promote and so so access. now those stories exist right. when but before also, they didn't. That program exists because funders stepped up after Open Signal staffers were thoughtful and did planning. Mm-hmm. But the funders stepping they up, had to get private funding right, because to do it. Yeah. because. Um, and I would say, I mean, this seems so nefarious to me that that these companies would limit and restrict how this cable money could be used, and that then these peg channels had to only spend money on equipment or the building at times. Right. They couldn't spend it on community engagement staffers, and they couldn't spend it in in these various ways. Um, so the channels that had capacity to do fundraising to build that capacity yeah. to do even more um, in their communities. They were able to, to do that. But I think there's, um, uh, you know, sometimes I like to imagine that there's this Machiavellian horrible um, character at these cable companies just like, right. I know, strategically, we will make it so they can't be as relevant as they could be by not letting them spend money on community impact. Well, I don't understand how cable works but it isn't it a they don't have an infinite number of channels do they can well, they just i mean can they just add five so more tomorrow a chant like a public access station do they want the channels back is this well, time right for i mean every, every I mean, well every channel costs them money yeah they I want mean, the cash and the channels right i mean so uh, right it, it like look at comcast recent activity in the last two years of what they've bought in europe for so example it's, it's a technological <laughs> question mm-hmm. right Back when uh, we were kids in the 80s, they could have 36 channels. And it was a pretty hard limit on how many channels they could put through the wire, right? Now in the in the in in 2019, they can put 200, 300 channels through the wire, right? But they still might want seven of them back. Right. But each one, caught, that's yeah. technical capacity, right? Even if it's we're talking three we out of 200 versus three out of 36. Seven more channels dedicated to flipping houses, Right. As well, and essentially to, because they can they can charge rent for those channels yeah. to to other networks, or, or you know they, you know there's all sorts of other contracts at play that those are each each one of those places in the dial though has been negotiated, or or exists by uh, by uh, by the result of, of legislation uh, must carry rules. The local cable company must carry local broadcast stations, for instance. However, the cable company has to pay the broadcast stations for. For doing so, another thing they'd love to see go away. I'm certain, but you know, it, it gets it gets detailed and it gets involved. But yeah. ultimately, right, it's not an infinite resource. You know, at any point, and each channel does matter. And it's also uh, money that's on the wrong side of a corporate balance sheet when it's when they're just giving it. If 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 you if you live in the world where uh, you're your uh your job is to maximize profits 
and not be concerned about uh, uh, community benefits or the public good, then these channels uh, aren't, they're not making any money for anybody. They're only serving the public, you know, they're only strengthening democracy, which isn't necessarily good for the bottom line of a for-profit company. May I say that? You may. Fair enough. <laughs> hey, Sabrina, uh, here on Radio Survivor, we've, especially this episode, we've been, um, we talk about things that the FCC uh, does that uh, we take issue with. We criticize the work. And I think it's interesting, even as a thought experiment, just to think about things that could uh, happen in our country that would... Um, Increase the sorts of uh, things we like to see here on Radio Survivor. Strengthen community media, which anyone anywhere near community media knows is often struggling just to keep the lights on. What could the FCC do in a in in a different political environment to to help the things to grow the things that we're even like? do in another two years? Yeah. There, we're changing governments in two years. I am. I, it's how could the FCC possible. help enhance uh, the public interest in communities? Well, I really thought it was interesting um, when uh, the Obama administration convened um, all of the different federal agencies and asked them to put together uh, what they could do for free or very low cost that would promote broadband. Um, hmm. Uh, propagation yeah. right um, I think that the federal government could convene all the federal agencies and say you know um, what could you do to support local um, media like I would I don't know if that would be defined as local community media like you know what is that but like could they fund, um, you know, studies in different towns, like rethink how we're mm -hmm. using different community institutions like the libraries and parks and rec, um, combine this with the digital equity work and, uh, you know, really also include maybe media literacy and, you know, how we handle misinformation, you know, fighting misinformation, mm -hmm. um, like they do in a few other countries like like in sweden um you yeah. know they have a pretty tight program on fighting misinformation there uh that includes their libraries and a lot more community institutions um but this mix i think you know the last time maybe that we uh had a whole bunch of activity looking at this this kind of mix at this neighborhood level um it was quite a few years ago um you know, when we had the community media activists who advocated for the Cable Act. You know, I, I, I don't know. I haven't actually looked at that part of history too deeply. Right. I mean, you know. George Stoney, like at NYU. But like. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and, and we don't need to necessarily ground it specifically in history, I don't think. Because, but, we, 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 you know, mm -hmm. the point we, we, like to po we, we like to make to folks, right, is, is to make sure there's an understanding that policy is designed. Policy doesn't just happen. The media environment we have, the laws we have, 
it wasn't just the natural outcome. This wasn't um this isn't evolution. Yeah, we social Darwinism social Darwinism for the media landscape is not choices how, are made. Yeah. Fights are fought, right? Uh the establishment of the cable act and the establishment of the right to have uh peg channels, right? Was because some people activists, lawyers, public interest advocates and groups got together and worked their 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 representatives they worked in washington they worked with with the fcc to 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 find ways in which these things could be affected when low power fm was created in 2000 it was a similar sort of you know what i coalition as a metaphor i hope it's not unfair to stretch it this far but like in a way you know when they teach rosa parks to elementary school kids in the 80s rosa parks was just a brave lady and then we learn later i learned later as a grown-up that rosa parks was a part of a movement you know, with with the real organizing and a, a real strategy, and and the, well, and it was part of a real and so the same idea. Mister Rogers wasn't just one brave guy; he was a part of a movement to build TV stations for well, other uses than pr- for profit. And uses. I would I would inter- I would jump in to say that um, you know, for looking at the constellation of public interests. Um, groups and activist groups and and whatnot that, you know, resulted in there being a Highlander Center where Rosa Parks could go to get training. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't it a meeting at the Highlander Center maybe a decade ago where the term media justice was hmm. was okay. agreed upon. Well, we're so we have <laughs> so much we have so much of this groundwork in place. Uh-huh. And um, there are just so many brilliant, passionate people working on these issues in various ways um, around the country. Um, and I think if there was a change in administration and we could do some work federally that... Um, so what would you like to see then? I mean, what are, what are some yeah. simple things? You know, one of the things Matthew Lassar, our, our, our compatriot at, at Radio Survivor, um, an expert on community radio and historian said could happen right now or, you know, and it's a, it's a change and it is not necessarily an easy change from a political standpoint. He said, look, the FCC is, au- is auctioning spectrum that used to be used for television to be used for services like 5G. And that is simply money that comes right into the federal coffers, right? Billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. So why couldn't we just use some of that money to help fund low-power FM stations to provide grants, block grants, but similarly could be used to provide block Which grants at this time, for digital esen- equity. Essentially, low-power FM stations are on their own. They don't get any government Correct. funding right. unless they are really good at weird paperwork. Most but, of them don't pull that off. Right. So it could also be money which would go to digital equity, could go to community uh, community media centers. A or, modest or, proposal. Right. Modest you know, you know, and because and, he's like, here's that money, right? <laughs> you know, is there something else you think, you know, in your in your creative mind that that an FCC or another federal bureaucracy could do? There's some sort of simple change that would perhaps make a meaningful difference. You know, if you if you could appoint an FCC, a majority of commissioners I, and, I, and give them some marching. I'd orders. actually take all of this out of the FCC. Yeah. At a certain level. I mean, the FCC could do some things some structural things that they they do but um i i really like that the digital equity act put the money with ntia and, like, and so tell us about that what, what? yeah so the digital equity act is uh is a bill that's been um released in uh in in the senate and uh they're waiting to um 
to launch it in the House, uh, be, you know, the more re- Republican. Yeah, yeah, we, we don't. Yeah, we don't have to get into the weeds on it. Yeah. We, we do it. So we can just. It would be I'll start good over if again. it was. A, so yeah. I can just say, okay, this is a bill that's been introduced into the Senate, and there's a version waiting to be introduced into the House. Yes, yes. Oh. But the thing that's um, important um, beyond it getting passed is um, that it puts the words digital equity into the congressional record. Mm. Right. And, um, and, and, and you, you mentioned that it doesn't do so through the Federal Communications Commission. Right. It does through another federal bureaucracy. Yes. And TIA, which is the entity um, that ran um, uh, the, the broadband funding a few years ago hmm. um uh and um they they do quite a bit of work around um broadband adoption and uh around the around the country what is NTI for? national telecommunications and information i believe it's information oh, okay. so it's, it's like a national telecommunication information administration yes okay and and it, is it not structured the same way as the fcc with well it's not a regulatory agency is it not to my knowledge. Yeah, yeah because because the 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 way that the FCC is built, it's it's essentially the leadership is essentially a very very political animal. Well, I mean, so, I think I think the difference to to be made here is that the Federal Communications Commission is a regulatory agency, right? It is there to regulate. Uh-huh. Not every arm of the government is regulatory. Its job right. is not to make rules to tell you what to do or what not to do. It's just to do things. And where Correct. can you know, where are the larger chunks of money that community media could have access to and that digital equity advocates could have access to? And if we look at the, you know, roughly $400 million, um, with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, they do not prioritize um, all kinds of community media. Um, yes. And there are many things that can be said about how that works. Um, but, you know, we should also be looking at the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts, which does have a media arts um, fund. Um, We should be looking at all of this. There are also pockets of USDA money that we could be accessing um, that folks in education access. Um, High quality YouTube videos about food security. Or infrastructure. Yeah. You know, so so I, I I appreciate you complicating this for us, Sabrina, um, because we do here at Radio Survivor with that radio in our name, we we do get sort of hyper focused on the Federal Communications Commission at the expense of considering that there's a lot of infrastructures here in the United States, at the very least, uh, and a lot of ways that one can go about to building. Uh, infrastructures to 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 providing better information and digital equity, and I, I like that you've complicated it for us, and you've you've helped to spread our focus away from just the FCC, and that there are other sites where where building might happen, not just regula- not just regulation, not just yeah. rules, and, and not everything should be. And when you say building, focused we're strengthening strengthening community or or, or right or providing money or to actually access. build things, yeah. yeah. Well, and I th- I think that at the state, county, and city level, we should be um, coming up with more of a plan for supporting community media and um, combining it with digital equity work um, and, and moving some things forward. Maybe there's model legislation at the state level that we can create and share with each other. Um, I know more and more um, cities, you know, state governments are looking at creative economies 
Um, they're documenting them. They're figuring out how to support them more. Um, and this community media work is part of that work. And we need to advocate for it being considered part of that work. Absolutely. Sabrina Roach. Thank you so much for joining us here on Radio Survivor. You've explained a lot of things for us. And we know you've had a very long day. You've had a very long week being here yeah. at, a, at a conference uh, <laughs> for the Alliance for Community Media, having a national conference here in Portland, Oregon. You're a board member of the Alliance for Community Media Foundation. And as always, we really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us and the listeners of Radio Survivor. Well, I appreciate the discussion we've had today. Um, I'm... Uh, I'm running fast to understand all of these different um, pieces of legalese. Keep running. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. To find out more about the issues facing public access, educational and government channels, the PEG channels, and to connect with the Alliance for Community Media and their campaign, you can go to the show notes today for radiosurvivor.com. This is episode number 203. Yes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. And, of course, we'd love to hear what, anything you have to say about public access television, educational government channels. Have you ever watched it? Have you ever yeah. volunteered there? Has it, has it informed your life? We'd love to hear your story. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Of course, you can also tweet at us. We're on Twitter and we're on Facebook. It's just Radio Survivor. We're the only ones. We're surviving. And, and you know, like I just want to drop in a minute to say that, you know, public access, I think it was a very clearly defined uh, genre of cable television in my mind growing up. Uh, it was the weird place. And I think there's a value to that, that it's uh, a unique space on the television screen. Uh, in the age of everything, YouTube and Facebook Live and every other kind of video streaming channel, that... Um, that identity might be shifting. I think what's so important about these channels now is just that it's there's the whole the whole universe of community media is so tiny compared to compared to the size of this country and it's a real shame to imagine it not having the opportunity to grow into something new and valuable for you know for 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 students who are in high school now for middle school students now coming up and deciding that they're interested in the media these are places that are available to them as small as they are in the cities that they do exist and they are community and, centers right yeah people meet access. each other collaborate in person and it's something which while there are great opportunities for collaboration online there is something about meeting in the flesh yeah yeah and and they i mean they also provide um you know, coverage of, of government meetings, you know, C-SPAN for the cities. Training, and equipment, train, yeah. and community. So it's definitely, it's definitely a, a space that deserves uh, the opportunity to grow in the future. And it would be, it would be very strange, a, a weird tragedy in 2020 to lose these stations sort of um, without even having a public conversation about it. Because uh, that appears to be what's what's on the table at the moment. So I just wanted to put that out there on Radio Survivor today. The thing here about this particular uh, proposal of the FCC is it's there's not much coverage of it. It's hard to understand. And it's something which, I mean, we're working hard to understand. And, and we're lucky we have friends who, who are willing to come and, and help us understand this. But we worry, really, that this isn't going to find coverage uh, elsewhere 
especially not on, on the radio or in podcasts. That's the kind of work we do here at Radio Survivor. We are listener funded. We are reader funded. And right now we're, we've got a big goal here. We're trying to reach 100 supporters. Are there 100 people out there throughout the world who care enough about grassroots and community media that they, they can spare one, two, five, ten dollars a month to help yeah. us continue to do this work because it's, we don't just, we're, we're going to want to continue to do what we do here every week, but we've got ambition. We see this history of how we got here to where now we had the greatest flowering of community media in history, of community radio in history with Low Power FM. But as you mentioned earlier in the show, Eric, this didn't just happen. It wasn't just because somebody at the FCC decided it was a good idea. It was a focused effort and movement uh, amongst a a wide variety of activists, some of whom were active in in what was called micropower radio, which is unlicensed pirate radio. That was that, where people put community radio stations on the air without a license in order to force the issue that that you couldn't get a license for a low powered station. Yeah, I love I love your your anecdote that you've often shared, Paul. That some of these stations were so community oriented that that individual like elected officials, like the mayor of certain or cities, whole cities, would, city councils, yeah, in, in cities like Santa Cruz, uh, California, or cities like Brattleboro, Vermont, you had uh, city councils pass resolutions in support of unlicensed stations performing that community radio function in their towns and cities. These folks got together along with folks who, who, who endeavored to learn the machinations of Washington and the federal bureaucracy to convince the FCC <laughs> heroes, real heroes. that they needed to create low-power FM. And, and many people were also you know, active in, in public access television and peg channels, active in grassroots media. Many of them were on the ground in Seattle. In 1999, November 30th, during the protests against the WTO, the World Trade Organization, that took place there, where indie media was born as a way for people to be report, be able to report from the streets what was really going on, rather than only rely on what would show up in corporate media, where they would be literally in helicopters <laughs> trying yeah. to describe what was going on, taking going to the police. A press conference to describe what was going on. Uh, at that point, it was realized that we should use technology, use uh, the burgeoning internet technology and burgeoning digital media devices to tell those stories uh, themselves uh, from the streets. The, these walk hand in hand. And, and some indie media centers even went on to to get low-power FM licenses themselves, yeah. such as We've WRFU talked, we- in Urbana, Illinois, which grew out of the independent media center there. Yeah, and which, which we talked to a low power FM station uh, in New York, yes, about twenty eight episodes ago. That was an indie media. The, the, yeah, the, the media station. sanctuary, uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know these things are put together, and and they're celebrating anniversaries. It's the twentieth anniversary of the D, of the WTO protests in Seattle this year uh, on November thirtieth, uh, and the birth of indie media, and then it's the birth of low power FM in January of twenty twenty. So. We which, want which to tell the, this story, the, um, Paul. What's what's the number of this anniversary for Low Power FM? It's twenty. Uh, twenty. Yeah, it's twenty years. Twenty so years. Twenty years for for some stations, and then you've also described how a lot of these stations came on in that second window and are right. hitting their half a decade. But, but the birth of Low Power FM as a service is January of twenty uh, twenty. That's a, that's the twentieth anniversary, and yeah. and we want to tell the story because in part. 
it, it really, it's kind of been lost. Maybe there's some, some little master, not little, but there's various master's theses that are out there, but there's, the narrative isn't quite all together. Right. Well, certain, it certainly runs counter to the prevailing wisdom, which we here on Radio Survivor have often uh, argued against uh, maintaining that wisdom. And I think at this point, the mainstream, uh, the zeitgeist is actually uh, flowing, of course, in, in that direction. That radio had already... Uh, that radio was going going away the same way that I'm like uh, the same way that the phonograph I guess would be going away. Um, so the, the the notion that radio would be growing in you know and and serving communities in new ways just um, did not compute, especially uh, for for you know the professional storyteller class. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and so we want to do this work. We really need your help to do that. We're looking to get to 100 patrons on Patreon by August one. As we record right now, we have 43, which means we're just about halfway there, but we have barely a week to get there. It's been been actually a really incredible month. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, we we sort of stepped up our efforts to ask and uh, uh, our fans, our our supporters have definitely um, shown themselves. And that's been a really incredible a feeling for all of us at Radio Survivor. I know Matthew and Jennifer Waits have also um, pitched in on on the sidelines, on the private channels, to say thank you to those supporters. But I think it's it's uh, reasonable now to say thank you to them Absolutely. here on the podcast as well. It's been an amazing show of support from uh, from our community, and we need a hundred to do this work right because it's going to be a lot above and beyond what we currently do in terms of producing this podcast, keeping the website going, uh, weekly updates that you get from Jennifer, from, from myself, from Matthew online. Um, we're we're going to have to really dig in to be able to tell this story. And to do so, we're, we'll have to take time away from other efforts. There will be expenses uh, that, that come along with that. And being able to predict that we'll have this money coming in on a monthly basis via Patreon is what will allow us to do that. And we figured out that if we had 100 regular supporters, we would have that firm foundation to do this work and to really kind of grow what it is we do with Radio Survivor. And and one of the ways that we say thank you is if you can sign up at the $5 tier, that's $5 a month, we'll give you a copy of our zine, which is... Being finished up as we speak, ready yeah. to send out. Jennifer just sent me in some mid-August new today. Handmade, laid out by Eric Klein uh, with lots of fun articles, contributions from all four radio survivors. Uh, that will be yours. And it's because we wanted to make something tangible, something you could hold, something that was in the DIY and grassroots spirit of of great community radio, great college radio, great part 15 radio and podcasting. Uh, and we thought, what better way to do that than with yeah. a zine? And that will go to all of our supporters who, as of August 1, are signed up at the $5 tier. Go to patreon.com slash radio survivor. If you want to learn more about the zine, go to radiosurvivor.com slash zine. But we really, if if, if you've thought about it, if you've enjoyed Radio Survivor, the podcast or the website or both for a while, now is the time we can really use your help. This is a time when we have a real concrete goal. Yeah. And we, we, we think it's something that will contribute overall to to really uh, the history of of independent media and community radio. Yeah, that's that's the part that I'm excited about is that there's been, you know, it's like the work that Jennifer and Matthew and, and you, Paul, and have done 
to document to document the the world of community media on radiosurvivor.com and then the work that we've done now with 203 episodes here on the podcast um i feel like it's all it's all been building towards this idea that um that here is a story that needs uh mm-hmm. that needs to be told in an organized right. and um uh What's, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a like a genuine effort, as like a story, to a right? Blog. Right. Rather than disparate little uh, pieces of information that are that are scattered about to kind yeah, of gather like, them together it, into a narrative. The, the real goal is to talk to every single person with a contribution. That might be hard, but we're going to talk to as many people as yeah. who will talk with us. You know, and 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 here it is at the 20th anniversary. You know, folks are still around; they're still yeah. reachable. Uh, you know, too much of the time, people try to assemble narratives much, many years later, and it becomes a much more difficult to construct these histories if you're going out 30, 40, and 50 years. And, I mean, the other the other exciting thing about the project is I know that we we sort of um, intuit, and, and also I think there's some some uh, stories that we know that the low pro- the low power FM movement uh, comes out of the indie media and the the pirate radio movements of the late nineties. I know that also, as soon as we start talking to people that more, more is going to come out about, about where, where community media has come from in this most recent generation that us. And that's, I think, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to hear what, it, it, it's a big yet. and it's a big project, and that's why we're we're leaning on this ongoing funding model, right? And in you know in in another era or or for another project, someone might say, well, let's do a Kickstarter for X amount of money, and and that might work, but because we know that we're going to be pulling on on uh, strings that may end up yielding quite a bit. We, we, we want to be able to continue to follow these things and because we're thinking about Radio Survivor as an ongoing project. And so, you know, we hope that we'll be able to contribute to this, to this history and is a document that, uh, that scholars or just anyone who's interested will be able to turn to in the years to come. Yeah, well, so thank you. Thank you, everyone, so far who's been able to support us. And uh, thank you all for listening to us. That's also very important to us here at Radio Survivor, that, you're, that you uh, appreciate the work that we do and that you tune in every week. It's been wonderful to know that you're there and that you're subscribing to the podcast as well as uh, if you get a chance to catch it on the radio these days. Uh, but right now, uh, you're subscribing to the podcast, and so we say thank you. Or listening on radiosurvivor.com. Thank you.